When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. December 29th, 1809. Dear Sir, after what has passed in the House of Representatives, I feel myself compelled to declare to you that I can never again be the bearer of a message to that body. It is with feelings the most painful that I make this declaration, which I believe to be due to as well as them, as to myself, to avoid the occasions for mortifications and insults which might be offered by some whose feelings are the most unfriendly, and whose situations place them beyond the reach of resentment, and to avoid those collisions in society under circumstances that would render them particularly disagreeable. Influenced by those considerations, and by these only, I cannot flatter myself at the step which I am about to take will be viewed by you with indulgence, and that you will accept the assurances which I offer you now, that in retiring from the situation which I at present occupy in your family, I will carry with me no other feeling than those of the warmest and most respectful attachment. I. A. Coles. As evidenced by this letter from President Madison's private secretary, Isaac Coles, the last few months of 1809 would bring some changes and new circumstances for an administration that was still not yet a year old. The unstable ground on which the Madison presidency had begun gave no evidence of solidifying anytime soon, and it would be up to the man from Virginia to guide the government and the nation through the uncertainty. Before we dive into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Eric of the Ranking 76 podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. With each episode, Eric and his co-host Matt are exploring the lives of the various figures who make up the story of the American West, be they heroes or villains. Thus far, they've covered well-known folks like Billy the Kid, Calamity Jane, and Tecumseh, as well as people like Tenskwatawa and John Wesley Hardin that might not be as familiar to the general public, but who still provide much insight into life on what was dubbed the American frontier in the 19th century. Their website is Ranking76, that's the number 76, .wordpress.com. I'll also have links on the source notes section for this episode on the website. If you'll recall from last episode, we left off with a new British government under Spencer Percival, the U.S. Minister to France John Armstrong finding little room to negotiate in Paris and advocating for war with France and Britain, and the quick breakdown of negotiations with the new British Minister to the U.S., Francis James Jackson, which put Jackson and the Madison administration on the defensive. However, I promised that we would start this episode by discussing the untimely death of the governor of the Louisiana Territory, Meriwether Lewis, in October 1809. So let's start there and work our way around, shall we? When last we discussed Lewis back in episode 3.33, then-President Jefferson had nominated him as the governor of the Louisiana Territory on February 28, 1807, and the Senate had quickly confirmed Lewis. However, this office was only seen by Jefferson as the next phase of Lewis's career. In Jefferson's mind, Lewis still had much to do in order to conclude the work of the historic expedition 
that he and William Clark had led. Clark had been given the task of returning to St. Louis to settle accounts with the men from the expedition, as well as carry out some other work for the War Department. Lewis's task was to get the journals and map that they had produced in the course of the expedition published. President Jefferson was adamant that the scientific knowledge gained in the course of the journey should be shared in an account written by his protege, Meriwether Lewis. Lewis got underway with this work eagerly at the end of March 1807 by traveling to Philadelphia to work on editing the journals and seeking a publisher. But the work slowed, and historian Stephen Ambrose pointed to a potential reason for that. Ambrose wrote as follows, quote, Lewis was leading a very heady life. At 33, he was the most celebrated man in Philadelphia, a city world-renowned for its celebrated men. Balls and testimonials were held in his honor. It was, perhaps, too much success too early in life. There were perhaps too many balls with too many toasts. This doesn't mean, however, that Lewis didn't make progress. As noted by historian Clay Jenkinson, that spring, quote, he signed a contract with a printer in Philadelphia, published the prospectus of the three volumes he had in mind, including a timeline of their expected release. Lewis entered into a series of agreements to get the celestial data corrected by a competent mathematician, to get illustrations made of some of the animals he had discovered, and the Great Falls of the Missouri River, and to have the plants he had discovered properly and technically described. He did everything one might expect a serious explorer to do, except write the book. Lewis would increasingly come under pressure from Jefferson to wrap up his work on the journal so that he could proceed on to St. Louis as there were problems in the territory. Again from Ambrose, quote, More Americans arrived in the territory daily, creating squabbles over deeds of land, trading licenses, Indian rights, and the other usual forms of contention on the frontier. A firm hand was needed. From Lewis, however, there was only continued delay. Indeed, the winter of 1807-1808 is a significant gap in what we know of the young explorer's life. As noted by Ambrose, quote, The only thing productive he did was begin work on a major paper recommending a basic Indian policy for Louisiana, which took him over a year to finish. He courted a young lady without success. He took care of some family business. Otherwise, he apparently did nothing at all. Finally, though, despite the work not being done on the account of the expedition, at the end of the winter season, Lewis set out for St. Louis to assume his post as governor of the Louisiana Territory. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As described by Ambrose, Lewis's plan going into the governorship was to, quote, drive the British out of upper Louisiana and use the U.S. Army to promote and protect the fur traders of St. Louis while holding back the land squatters. The territorial secretary and acting governor, Frederick Bates, was quite eager for Lewis to arrive and take the reins of power since, though he was described as, quote, an experienced bureaucrat, he was not the strong leader that was needed in the territory. Lewis arrived on March 8, 1808, and threw himself into the business of government, as well as his own personal dealings of land speculation and investments in the fur trade. He was soon joined by his friend and colleague, William Clark, and Clark's new wife, Julia, 
who are settling in St. Louis to take advantage of the boom and opportunity there. Though Lewis was involved in developments in the area, including the formation of the St. Louis-Missouri River Fur Company in late 1808, there was still no progress on the completion of his written work on the expedition, and the outgoing president was quite eager for that work to progress. As with many things at that point in the Jefferson presidency, though, there was little the president either could or was willing to do, and thus the work was still uncompleted when Madison took office in March 1809. Jefferson's leaving office threatened to end the gravy train that Lewis had availed himself of since his return from the expedition. Though even Jefferson's administration had found points to criticize Lewis on his conduct as governor, including about his exceeding his authority in deploying troops in the area without permission from the president, Jefferson had provided cover for his young protege. Madison, however, had no such loyalty to Lewis, and the problems started mailing. In late February 1809, Lewis had signed an agreement with the St. Louis-Missouri River Company that we would describe nowadays as a public-private partnership, but which proves ethically problematic since Lewis was one of the founders of and partners in this private company. Meanwhile, he and Territorial Secretary Bates were not getting along, and Bates was advocating for Lewis's dismissal. In mid-August, Lewis received a letter from Secretary of War William Eustace rebuking him on a number of matters. Though the contract with the St. Louis-Missouri River Company had been approved begrudgingly, Lewis was held to account for a $500 draft that he had requested for expenses, quote, for presents for the Indians with whom he had been negotiating. It was also made clear that Lewis would be held solely responsible for a military expedition he had sent off without getting prior authorization from the government in Washington. Meanwhile, Jefferson still wanted his book on the expedition. As he wrote to Lewis on August 16th, quote, I'm very often applied to know when your work will begin to appear, and I have so long promised copies to my literary correspondents in France that I'm almost bankrupt in their eyes. I shall be very happy to receive from yourself information of your expectations on this subject. Everybody is impatient for it. In order to get on a better footing with the administration, as well as take care of personal matters, Meriwether Lewis set off in early September 1809, bound for Washington, D.C., via a trip down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Lewis, however, was not well, and the trip would do nothing to improve matters. As described by Ambrose, quote, The Mississippi River Valley in early September 1809 was hot, humid, buggy. Lewis's boat proceeded slowly, since it was necessary for the crew to rest during the middle part of the day. He was in a terrible condition possibly suffering from a malaria attack, certainly in a deep depression that caused him unbearable pain. Twice he tried to kill himself, whether by jumping overboard or with his pistol is not known, and had to be restrained by the crew. Lewis was drinking heavily, using snuff frequently, taking his pills, talking wildly, telling lies. When he arrived at Fort Pickering on the Chickasaw Bluffs in what's now Memphis, Tennessee, the commander of the fort, after hearing of Lewis's suicide attempts, quote, resolved at once to take possession of him and his papers and detain them there until he recovered, or some friend might arrive in whose hands he could depart in safety. By September 29, after constant watch, it was deemed that Lewis was capable of continuing his journey overland to D.C. 
As his party proceeded on the Natchez Trace, however, Lewis returned to his practice of heavy drinking, and his companions on the journey were increasingly concerned about his condition. On October 10th, they arrived at Grinder's End, 72 miles out from Nashville, Tennessee. Later accounts of his behavior that evening were that he seemed rather peculiar, but he was cordial towards the proprietor of the inn, Mrs. Grinder. At some point in the early morning hours of October 11th, though, Lewis died by suicide. I won't go into the details, but suffice it to say that it was not a quick death for him. With this passing, not only was the life cut tragically short, as Lewis was only 35 at the time, but whatever dreams and ambitions Thomas Jefferson had for his protege and for the scientific work that he had anticipated from Lewis, died with the governor. For a man who had shown so much promise, his years after the expedition did not seem to reflect that. Though, as Clay Jenkinson notes, it may have been due to the nature of his previous experience and circumstances beyond his control that he did not have a successful tenure as a territorial governor. As Jenkinson writes, quote, He, i.e. Lewis, was too accustomed to military command to understand the yeasty brew of frontier politics. It's hard for a reader of the 21st century to understand the chaos and turmoil of what became Missouri in 1808. It would be up to the Madison administration to determine just who could provide the steady hand needed to get matters under control. But at the end of 1809, there were other messy political matters to consider, including what to do about our old friend, General James Wilkinson. When last we left Wilkinson and the poor, unfortunate troops under his command at Terrebuff in episode 4.5, disease due to treacherous living conditions was tearing through the camp. As noted by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linklater, quote, the months at Terrebuff saw 145 losses from death and desertion. When word reached Secretary of War William Eustace that Wilkinson had disobeyed his orders to move the troops upriver and had instead moved them downriver with disastrous yet predictable results, he was fit to be tied. He wrote to Wilkinson ordering him, quote, immediately to embark all the troops and proceed to the high ground in the rear of Fort Adams and Natchez, the destination that Wilkinson had initially been ordered to move the force. The Navy was ordered to provide 24 gunboats to move the force from Terrebuff, but in the end, they were only sent four boats that were, quote, rotten and unseaworthy. Thus, Wilkinson had higher boats, and, again from Linklater, quote, the troops were crammed onto the few boats that could be hired in New Orleans, and, with agonizing slowness, were rowed upstream in the sultry summer heat. If you've never been to Louisiana in the summer, let me tell you, sultry is an understatement. It's an oppressive, muggy heat that makes you want to fall out just stepping outside, much less being cramped in a confined space with tons of other folks. Linklater notes that, quote, in an operation that eventually saw the force lose more than 1,100 men, approximately 750 of them died or deserted after the move ordered by Eustace. More than 200 men had succumbed on the boats, but weakened by disease and recurrent fevers, including malaria. Another 500 died after they reached dry land. It wouldn't be until mid-October 1809 that the first of Wilkinson's force arrived at Fort Washington in the Mississippi Territory, and around the end of the month, the rest were landed at Natchez. Now, 
it's not surprising that with such disastrous results from Wilkinson's command that there would be an inquiry into the matter. The terrible fiasco was yet another black eye on the still relatively new administration, as well as the military effectiveness of the nation at the time, where it was quite possible that the United States could be at war with either Britain or France in the near future. Wilkinson had gone too far this time, and thus, on December 19, 1809, President Madison issued orders suspending James Wilkinson as commanding officer of the U.S. Army, quote, pending the outcome of a congressional investigation. Another embarrassing situation for the administration stemmed from an altercation relating to the communication of Madison's first annual message to Congress on November 29th that we discussed at the end of the last episode. As mentioned, this message was carried to Congress and read by the President's private secretary, Isaac Coles. Coles had rather of a reputation around town. As Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum described, Coles, quote, was thought by many to be the handsomest man in Washington, and his travels caused palpitations up and down the Atlantic coast. As the details are sketchy at best, it's not known whether it was due to a romantic entanglement or another personal matter or even a political disagreement that the following occurred. But we do know that at some point in his trip to deliver the annual message, Isaac Coles assaulted Representative Roger Nelson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland. One witness account asserted that Nelson had, quote, extended his hand in greeting to Coles, and Coles responded by striking Nelson in the face. Another account had him, quote, seizing Nelson by the collar and hitting him with some violence on the forehead or temple before telling Nelson, quote, I'm willing for this matter to end here. You attacked my character, and I've taken this method to take satisfaction or to chastise you. Francis James Jackson wrote to his brother that Coles had quote-unquote horsewhipped Nelson. Whatever the case may be, this was an embarrassing situation for the president to have his official representative and a member of his extended family, Coles was, in fact, a first cousin of Dolly Madison, assault a member of Congress at the Capitol building. Two days after the incident, Coles sent a letter to Speaker of the House Joseph Barnum, Democratic-Republican from Massachusetts, apologizing for his actions. This did not stop the House of Representatives from appointing a committee on December 8th, quote, to investigate for breach of privilege. Coles was ultimately fined $20, but the committee in its final report on December 29th did not recommend any further action, though it did determine that it was a quote-unquote breach of privilege. With this official rebuke, Coles wrote the letter that was our opening quote, resigning from his position as Madison's private secretary. This, however, would not be the only person linked politically and by marriage to the president causing embarrassment to Madison and his administration around this time. I'm not finding where we've introduced Representative John G. Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, in the narrative as of yet, but Jackson has been serving as the U.S. Representative for the 1st District of Virginia since 1803. Jackson's father, George Jackson, had previously held the seat serving one term starting in 1795, then serving again from 1799 until 1803 when his son took his oath of office. Jackson had been an erstwhile supporter of the Jefferson administration and of then-Secretary of State James Madison, who was his wife Mary's brother-in-law. Indeed, as noted by Jackson's biographer Stephen W. Brown, quote, Jackson undoubtedly helped forge a strong Republican phalanx in support of the administration 
in the midst of crises, including the Chesapeake Leopard Affair and the Embargo Act. When the Madisons took up residence in the President's House, Jackson would continue to champion the administration in the House, though in June 1809, during the first short session of Congress, Jackson may have gone a bit too far in that defense. On June 13th, a petition came before the House from, quote, 36 American citizens who had participated in the failed expedition launched by Francisco de Miranda in 1805, as discussed back in episode 3.31. Though Miranda had been received by President Jefferson and Secretary Madison in Washington prior to the expedition, in order to distance themselves from the scheme after its failure, some of the Americans involved in the matter had been prosecuted upon their return to the United States, including John Adams' son-in-law, William Smith. The citizens sending this petition, however, had not made it back stateside and were, quote, confined in the vaults of Cartagena, South America, and pleaded for assistance to free them, asserting, quote, that they were involuntarily drawn into the unlawful enterprise. Representative Joseph Pearson, Federalist from North Carolina, argued that an appropriation should be made to secure their release due to the fact that this expedition, quote, had been begun, prepared, and set on foot with the knowledge and approbation of the President of the United States and the Secretary of State, despite the fact that Pearson believed the participants did not know the details of the mission until it was too late. As he had done many times before, Jackson jumped up to the administration's defense and asserted that, quote, I believe if there was any manner of bringing the gentleman to the bar to exhibit and substantiate his charge, it ought to be done. This was out of line for House debate procedure at the time, and Jackson was duly warned by the presiding chair. Pearson wasn't ready to let the matter go, however, and the next day rose to proclaim that Jackson had been, quote, agitated, quickened, and roused, as if some demon, some evil spirit had rushed through these walls and threatened us with destruction, and exclaimed, quote, that not only the call of my country shall be obeyed, but also any private call which it may be honorable to meet. As those who have been listening for a while know, that is the language of an affair of honor, which could very well lead to a duel. The newspapers then got involved, printing story after story about the altercation, with some attacking Jackson as being averse to dueling, while others printed what they claimed were Jackson's remarks about Pearson. As the altercation had come at the end of the short session, Congress had already dispersed to the winds, and thus, When Pearson wrote to Jackson asking for confirmation about his remarks, the letter was sent to Jackson's home in Clarksburg. Jackson, in his reply on August 25th, confirmed that he could not verify his exact words, but that some of the words attributed to him were false. Nearly two months went by before Jackson heard any more from Pearson, but he was increasingly hearing rumors that Pearson would seek satisfaction. On October 21st, Pearson showed up in Clarksburg with his friend, Major James Stevenson. The next day, Pearson sent word to Jackson that his response of August 25th was unsatisfactory and issued an official challenge. Jackson accepted, and Jackson's friend, James Pendle, agreed to serve as his second. They agreed to meet on the morning of October 23rd, but when the seconds inspected the pistols to be used, Pendle objected about Pearson's intentions to use pistols with a sight. When they could not come to an agreement about the matter, Stevenson proposed that the duel be postponed until the next session of Congress began, and all agreed, though Pendle would be unable to travel to Washington to continue as Jackson's second. Shortly after Congress reconvened, Pearson challenged Jackson once more, 
and they agreed to have the duel in Bladensburg, Maryland. Representative Benjamin Howard, Democratic Republican from Kentucky, agreed to be Jackson's second. Though we know that the duel took place on December 4th, we don't have many details about the actual duel. On December 3rd, Jackson wrote to his sister-in-law, Dolly Madison, saying his farewells if he didn't survive the duel, and asked her to extend his regards and farewells to the president as well. We know that they exchanged two shots, and with the second one, Jackson was shot in the hip. Initially, it wasn't clear how serious the wound was, and Pearson ended the duel and asked, quote, to shake hands and effect a reconciliation with the perhaps die man, a request that Jackson granted, and he told his congressional colleague that he forgave him if he should pass away from the injury. Though Jackson survived the duel, he would experience hip issues related to the wound for the rest of his life. Jackson was not able to resume his seat in the House until April 12, 1810, and spent months recovering, first in Maryland before he was able to be moved back to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, a motion was made for an investigation into the duel by the House Rules Committee, as there was a resolution on the books from 1796, quote, providing for the expulsion of any member engaging in a duel while Congress was in session, but this motion was tabled by the House. Despite the lack of an official rebuke, one violent act after another being committed by folks closely associated with the president naturally sent chins to wagging. While there's more drama to come for the Madison administration, I think that's enough for one episode. Next time, we'll take a detour to explore the life and legacy of Dolly Madison. Then, on our return to the narrative, get caught up on developments in Napoleonic Europe because there was some drama happening over there as well. Special thanks again to Eric for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out the Ranking 76 podcast, available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. You can also find a link to the Ranking 76 podcast on the source notes page for this episode at the website, which is Presidency's Podcast, all one word, dot com. There, you can also find out information about the itinerant band who graciously allowed us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. Thanks so much to Alex Van Rose for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Alex's services for editing your podcast or audio project, a link to his Fiverr page can be found on the sources section for this episode on the website. If you have any questions or comments for me, please feel free to reach out via email at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you don't already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. It's been a long journey already, and we've got much more ahead of us. So be sure to join me next time as we continue our exploration of presidential history. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. 
uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.